Blessed be the Lord who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, Jethro adds, that the Lord is greater than all gods. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 22, Anti-Semitism and Philo-Semitism, The Tales of Amalek and Jethro. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. When George Washington was inaugurated as President of the United States, various religious communities in America sent him letters of congratulations. The Catholics in America sent him a letter. The Baptists sent him a letter. The Quakers sent him a letter. The Jews in America couldn't quite agree as to whom among them would send Washington the letter, so ultimately they ended up sending three letters. There are very few Jews in America at this point. Three letters. Washington must have been mystified as to why the Jews kept sending him letters. But thank God they did, for the president courteously replied to every single one, giving us today true treasures of American Jewish history. The most famous of these was written by Washington to the Jews of Newport, where the president echoed his correspondent, Moses Satius of Rhode Island, by writing that, quote, It is now no more that toleration is spoken of, as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people, that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. But much less known and even more exquisite is Washington's correspondence with the Jews of Savannah. In this letter, we find the biblical roots of the philosemitism of the father of our country, and the Hebraic roots of America. Following the miracle of the manna, Israel is all of a sudden attacked. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Amalek is defeated, for the moment, by Joshua. Now, this is not Israel's first enemy. Egypt has just enslaved it for centuries, and yet, God seems to single out Amalek as uniquely evil. Verse 14, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my standard. And he said, The hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Today, the very term Amalek has come to serve for traditional Jews as the embodiment of anti-Semitism. We are commanded to remember Amalek and the Almighty's enmity for it because, as Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik has explained, the biblical appellation refers not only to one tribe, but also to our enemies throughout the ages who will follow the original Amalek's example. But why is this so? What is at the heart of Amalek's assault? And what does this tell us about the enemies of the Jewish people throughout history? The answer begins with the somewhat shocking realization that Amalek's ancestry is closely connected to that of Israel, for the original Amalek was himself the grandson of Esau. Esau's story, the conflict over Isaac's Abrahamic blessings, and Esau's ultimate exclusion from Abraham's chosenness, become significant in our analysis. Esau is himself ultimately reconciled to Jacob, 
and we will say more about this point soon, but the origin of Amalek teaches us about the nature of anti-Semitism itself and that it is in some way a reaction to Israel's chosenness. Interestingly, the best recent writer on this subject has not been Jewish at all. He is Rob Nicholson, a friend of mine and a young Christian leader in America, founder of the Philos Project and Passages, which fosters ties between Christians and the Holy Land. In 2019, Rob wrote an article in Providence Magazine arguing that given the history of the past 2,000 years, Christians have a unique obligation to fight anti-Semitism. Returning to this article recently, I realized that Rob's piece allows us to understand the passages in the Bible about Amalek with a new perspective. Here are two passages from Rob's piece. He writes, and I'm quoting from his article, Anti-Semites may exhibit any number of irrational biases, but anti-Semitism is no ordinary prejudice. As an ideology, it runs deep. Fundamentally, it is a rebellion against what happened at Sinai, that desert mountain where the Israelites encountered a supernatural being who gave them a special revelation for the ages. Anti-Semitism climaxes in violence against the Jewish people, but it begins with a loathing of the Jewish God and his message to mankind. The disease manifests itself in many forms, but it almost always grows from a resentment of chosenness. The idea that the Jewish God appointed one nation, the nation of Israel, to play a special role in history. Those are Rob's words. And he further writes as follows. Quote, Next comes a denial of the moral vision contained in Hebrew scripture. No one better epitomized this denial than German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, the son of a Lutheran pastor who wrote at least three books excoriating the ascetic ideal that the Jews brought into the world. It was the Jews and their concept of sin, Nietzsche argued, that corrupted the innocence of man. It was the Jewish Bible, spread to the world by their Christian offspring, that destroyed the primal beauty of classical civilization. Nietzsche may be dead, but his postmodern heirs carry on his legacy, cursing Hebraic morality and doing their best to upend it. End quote. This is what Rob writes, and now we can return to our own tale. Unlike Egypt, no geopolitical or utilitarian motive is given for Amalek's attack. The fact that it occurs immediately after the Exodus indicates to us that perhaps the attack was intended as an assault on the chosenness that the miracles in Egypt established, and also as an attack on the moral vision of the Bible that the Exodus enshrined. The Amalekite attack on Israel is later described in Deuteronomy 25.17, and both Amalek's response to the miracles of the Exodus and its sheer immorality is stressed. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way as ye came forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and cut down the stragglers in the rear, and thou wast famished and weary. The Amalekites are singled out by the Bible from amongst the enemies of ancient Israel because in their hatred for the chosen people, they attacked the weak, the stragglers, the helpless, those that posed no threat to them in any way. And we are called to remember that the attack occurred as ye came forth out of Egypt. Amalek, in other words, embodies anti-Semitism in its attack on chosenness itself. There was therefore a terrible symbolism when, last year during a series of anti-Semitic attacks in New York, a machete-wielding assailant attacked a rabbi's home in Muncie as Jews gathered within to celebrate Hanukkah, to light the menorah, and to mark the miracle that is the Jewish people. 
In the Bible, the miracles of the Exodus are immediately followed by the attack of the Amalekites. And it is as if the Torah is thereby telling us that chosenness and anti-Semitism are somehow connected. Rob Nicholson responded to that attack with a remarkable op-ed in the New York Post. There he wrote that, quote, to fight anti-Semitism, we need to understand its spiritual sources. This isn't just any old hatred or racism. It is a grand anti-myth that turns Jewish chosenness on its head and assigns to the people of Israel responsibility for all the world's ills. And then Rob added that, quote, the best response to anti-Semitism isn't anti-anti-Semitism. It is philo-Semitism, love of the Jewish people. But a philo-Semitism of words, he further wrote, will do nothing. It must be incarnated and turned to action, end quote. And then Rob concluded, I, for one, stand ready to act. Rereading Rob's article again, I noticed something in Scripture that I had not heretofore seen as I prepared this Bible 365 talk. Right after the tale of Amalek, we encounter in Exodus a fascinating philo-Semitic episode. Chapter 18. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. We have here a family reunion. The man whose daughter Moses had married, when in Midian, now joins them, bringing Moses' wife and children along. And if Amalek's attack on Israel was inspired by anger at the Exodus, Jethro's reaction to the miracles of Israel in Egypt is the exact opposite. Verse 9. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the travail that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, Jethro adds, that the Lord is greater than all gods. In the annual synagogue cycle of Torah reading, the tale of Amalek's attack concludes one week's portion, and then the story of Jethro begins the next week's. We Jews, therefore, tend to miss the otherwise entirely obvious point that these two tales are clearly and deliberately juxtaposed. The response to anti-Semitism, Rob Nicholson wrote, should be philo-Semitism. And in the Bible, the advent of Amalek archetype of anti-Semitism, is followed by the ultimate embodiment of philo-Semitism. In understanding this, it may be instructive to return to Genesis for a moment. After many years of estrangement, Jacob meets Amalek's ancestor, his brother Esau, and they embrace and weep. Esau goes his own way to live on the other side of the Jordan, implicitly acknowledging Jacob's right to what will be the land of Israel. For Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, my great-great-great-great-grandfather, the emotion of Esau at this moment is genuine, heartfelt, and it also, therefore, bespeaks a possible future. It betokens a time, Rabbi Berlin argues, when at least some non-Jews will embrace the people of Israel, its connection to the Holy Land, and to the God of the Bible. And then, Rabbi Berlin writes further, we will embrace that love in return. Incredibly, Rabbi Berlin wrote this in Eastern Europe when he was surrounded by Gentiles who showed him anything but love. He was not blind to the anti-Semitism that surrounded the Jews in his yeshiva, but he still believed that philo-Semitism was possible. 
and perhaps Scripture's stressing of the story of Jethro immediately after Amalek's attack intends to teach us that there can be those who respond to Israel's chosenness in a way that is the reverse of Amalek, that there will be those throughout Jewish history that echo the exclamation of Jethro, Blessed be the Lord who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. Today, this verse is part of a Sabbath portion that bears Jethro's name, in Hebrew, Parashat Yitro, the portion of Jethro. This portion further contains the story of the Sinai revelation, which we will discuss tomorrow. All this in Jewish parlance is today named for Jethro, and it highlights that in response to his embrace of the chosenness of Israel, we Jews embrace Jethro in return. Of course, throughout much of Jewish history, imitators of Jethro have been few and far between. But in America, we have been blessed to experience it many times. And I will share with you my most recent example. Two months ago, I published a piece in commentary about the liberation of Bergen-Belsen by the British Army and about the experience of Jewish chaplains that ministered to the survivors. Those that arrived at Belsen were witness to mass graves and all that Nazi evil had wrought. The ultimate example of those who, to apply the biblical phrase, attacked the weakest among us. Amalekites that feared not God. But the article that I wrote was not only about modern Amalek's evil, but also about the faith of Israel. Some of the stories recounted by the chaplains are heartbreaking. One rabbi described a mother whose child was murdered, but who nevertheless expressed gratitude to God that she was able to give that child an individual burial. Other tales are about the resilience of the Jewish people and the miracle of Israel about a Jewish soldier in the British army who married a former inmate of the camps, and about another survivor who sang Hatikva at liberation and whose grandson now serves in the Israeli army. After my piece was published, commentary received a philo-Semitic letter from a member of the U.S. Congress, part of which reads as follows. The Nation of the Dry Bones, written by Mayor Soloveitchik, brought me to tears. I had tears of sadness reading about the mom who survived the Holocaust but who thanked God for, quote-unquote, the great privilege of being able to bury her own daughter. And tears of joy reading about the bride clothed in a British parachute. I am frequently reminded why we need to support and defend the state of Israel. We have a moral obligation to protect the safe haven for Jews all over the world from areas where anti-Semitism and persecution prevail. We have a practical obligation to stand by the only democracy in the Middle East. I was taught at a young age by my dad that those who bless Israel will be blessed. May America always be a blessing to Israel and be blessed for it. The letter was signed. Sincerely, Don Bacon, Brigadier General Retired, Congressman, 2nd District of Nebraska. It goes without saying, but it is worth saying anyway, that this is not a letter that Jews would have received from most non-Jewish political leaders throughout their history. But if it can be found in America, it is inspired by the example set by some of the founders. And the best example, perhaps, is to be found in the words that Washington wrote to the Jews of Savannah. The president concluded his letter as follows. May the same wonder-working deity, who long since delivering the Hebrews from their Egyptian oppressors, planted them in the promised land, whose providential agency has lately been conspicuous in establishing these United States as an independent nation, still continue to water them with the dews of heaven 
and to make the inhabitants of every denomination participate in the temporal and spiritual blessings of that people whose God is the God of the Bible. And Washington actually uses the name of God that traditional Jews do not pronounce. Washington, in other words, essentially echoes the words of Jethro. Blessed is the Lord who saved thee from the hands of Pharaoh and Egypt. And he stresses that it is the Israelite story that inspires America to see the hand of God in their own achievement of independence. The Savannah letter is not as celebrated as the one to the Jews of Rhode Island, but it is perhaps even more important, and the two pieces of correspondence should be taken in tandem. It is Washington words to Newport that expresses that in America it is no longer toleration that is spoken of, that equality is offered to all faiths. But it is Washington's letter to Savannah that reminds us that many founders revered the story of the Jewish people, saw themselves as paralleling our story, and sought succor from our faith. Rob Nicholson, in his aforementioned article in Providence Magazine, writes that, quote, after Israel, the United States stands alone in history as a Hebrew Republic consciously modeled on the ethical vision of the Hebrew Bible. Anti-Semitism on our shores, he continues, is a cause for special concern since any attack on the Jewish God, Jewish people, or Jewish revelation is also an attack on the American idea, end quote. Rob is right, and whether this continues to be believed by other Americans depends at least in part on their own reverence for the Hebrew Bible and their embrace of the way in which it inspired the American founders. That is why, as we continue to fight against anti-Semitism today, it is Washington's letter to Savannah Jewry, paraphrasing Jethro, that remains one of the greatest of gifts, its message speaking to us across the centuries with words that are as important as ever. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.